you know, when you're faced with the person with a mental health disorder in their home, it's you and them. There's no one to call out for help. We see clients who may be experiencing homelessness or are affected by drug or alcohol issues, specifically drug dependency issues. And they didn't always plough the driveway, so sometimes you'd have to leave your car at the gate and walk up in a dress with no long pants up through snow that was up to your waist. It was a very interesting time. So it doesn't matter where you work as a nurse, you have cared for a refugee or someone from a refugee-type background. You've delivered their babies, you may have taken out their appendix, or you may indeed, as a nurse, be a nurse who's come through from a refugee family. Hi, welcome to Think Health. I'm Jake Morecambe. Tomorrow, the Community and Primary Healthcare Nursing Week, held by the Australian College of Nursing, begins, showcasing some of the most important and courageous work performed by healthcare professionals working outside the four walls of the hospital. Today on the show, you'll hear some of these stories from working as the only community nurse in a small, snow-stricken town north of Toronto, to providing care to some of Australia's most marginalised communities. But we're going to start by taking a look back. In May of 1999, the Australian government began what is now known as Operation Safe Haven, which was the airlift of 4,000 refugees from Kosovo in southeastern Europe, following tensions between the Albanians and Serbians. These refugees were temporarily relocated to Australia, where a camp and hospital facility was set up in the New South Wales Army Barracks. Sandy Eager was one of the nurses who helped set up this hospital. With more than 30 years under her belt as a practising nurse, over 20 years spent in emergency, and now in her current role as nursing manager of the New South Wales Refugee Health Service, Sandy recalls this particular time quite clearly, and what was initially meant to be a six-week placement turned into much more. That six-week secondment actually ended up being 17 months. (laughs) Um, Because... By the time we had sorted the Kosovars out, by the time that the Americans had gone in and sorted the Serbians out and, and they decreed that it was safe to go home, the vote for the independence of East Timor had then taken place in the October. And as most people would remember, following that vote for independence, um, you know, terrible conflicts started raging in East Timor with, you know, indiscriminate burnings, killings, mass slaughter of civilians. During that time, we had some Australian uh, soldiers, Australian peacekeepers up in Dili in the UN compound, working for the UN. And about a 1,000 people had managed to get over the barbed wire into the complex, seeking safety from the militia forces outside. And the Australian government or the UN ordered the UN staff to evacuate. And to their undying credit, they stood their ground and said they wouldn't go unless they could take the people with them. And that was initially denied, um, but they stood their ground and said, well, the world will be watching 
and we're all going to die here. So you either take us all or that's the alternative. So the Australian government said, okay, and then they airlifted a 1,000 East Timorese to Darwin and then from Darwin they brought them down to us in Sydney. So even though we were about to close the camp, the whole thing started again. So it was like being in a refugee camp in my neighbourhood. Yeah. It was an absolute um, you know, privilege to be amongst these people who were so tough and tenacious and such survivors whilst living in this very rich first world country called Australia. Just at the beginning of that, what was meant to be a six-week secondment, had you ever worked in an environment like that before? Oh, certainly not in the middle of an army barracks. I think that was more frightening than anything else. How so? Uh, well, you know, army, uh, you know, very strict, uh, lots of rules, quite rigid sort of behaviour from soldiers. Some of them weren't too pleased that their army barracks had been, you know, invaded by all these refugees. Uh, who were in various states of, of shock and, and exhaustion. But I have to say, looking back, that was actually a nice outcome because for a lot of the soldiers, these weren't the enemy. You know, these were people living amongst us and they were sort of then given permission, inverted commas, to show their best side. So when you see, you know, a huge army commando sitting in the middle of a soccer field playing with a group of little East Timorese kids and, you know, allowing the kids to jump on his back and taking them for horsey ride. You know, that's a really nice image. What was the atmosphere like on the ground during that time? Uh, at times, very tense. People, as I said, were in various stages of, of real culture shock, I have to say. One of the teenage boys that we had at the camp because, you know, it was an open camp, so they weren't being restricted or anything. Um, and so he'd come into Liverpool, which was the closest city to the camp, and he came back and he said to me, you know, he said, I walked down those streets today and there were so many different people. There were Indians and there were Chinese-looking people and there were Arabic people and nobody was shooting each other. <laughs> And he said, you know where I come from, once you learn to hate, you hate forever. And he said, I don't want to go back to do that. I don't want to hate anymore because they, that person is different. He said, that's what Australia has taught me. And I thought, wow, we're so lucky in this multicultural country that you know, we live in a relatively peaceful community. During that secondment, what exactly were your duties? Well, I was managing a 24-hour health clinic in the middle of an army camp. So, you know, we had 1,600 to 2,000 refugees there at any given time. We ran GP clinics. We ran uh, dental clinics. We organised transfers in and out of hospital for surgery. We advocated for people a lot. We managed to get people the right clothes. We got shoes for kids. We managed to get an artificial eye fitted to a lovely, lovely East Timorese man whose eye had been taken out by a rifle but by the wow. Indonesian some years before. So he had a, a terribly disfigured face because he'd never had a prosthesis in there. So his eye had really sunk. But he was a lovely, lovely young guy. And he came to us and said, you know, if you could get me an eye, I think that maybe someone could love me because <laughs> I might 
And when we go home, there'll be many, many widows without their men um, with children. And I think I could be useful. So we thought that was a pretty good <laughs> argument. So as I said, we arranged for him to have an eye placed in in Sydney here with our wonderful eye prosthetic magicians. And um, yeah, he went back and we heard some months later that he had fallen in love with a young widow and she had fallen in love with her handsome man and <laughs> they got married. <laughs> but as I say, look, at times when it was time to go home, uh, the tension between immigration and the army, it was a big logistical exercise to move people uh, back halfway around the world. And for us, from a health point of view, we wanted to be able to give people a copy of their medical records so that at the next health encounter, they knew what we had done, um, that we could pack their x-rays with them, that sort of stuff. So, yeah, it's a pretty big. And when I said we ran and managed a health clinic, it was a it was a three. It was a two bedroom house. Basically, was the clinic. Um, the pharmacy was in the laundry, and uh, we did a lot of our preparation work in the kitchen. And our waiting room was the garage. A two-bedroom house, a waiting room as a garage, 1,600 people and a 24-hour open service. How do you begin to manage that? Well, you have to do it with a lot of humour. And I think we also had to have a very united goal. And I think that's why it was so successful. So as, as nurses and health staff, we made the decision early on that we would try and do as much as we could for these people in the space that we had knowing that they weren't going to stay forever. Most people wanted to go home. I have to say, for all the farmers who who were evacuated, a lot of the farmers arrived with a key around their neck, and that was the key to their tractors. So as the Serbs invaded and came across their lands, they, you know, turned off their tractors, grabbed the key, put it into, you know, put the parking brake off and, and fled. Um, and a lot of them wanted to go home because they had crops to plant and they had houses to rebuild and lives to rebuild. And I think that's a bit of a myth that we think about in Western society around refugees, that everybody wants to come to Australia or ever wants to go to Canada. Well, that's actually not right. A lot of people just want to go home. Jumping forward to the work that you do now with New South Wales Refugee Health Service, what does your work entail? Well, as I say, I manage three different nursing programs on a day-to-day basis, We have a reception, triage, uh, assessment, nursing model of care that we do on a day-to-day basis. We also uh, look out for people that have got, say, disabilities, refugees with disabilities. We do a lot of work in that space. We beg, borrow and steal equipment for them because people arrive with nothing, absolutely nothing. There's no wheelchairs, no walkers. You know, people arrive with amputated legs, with no prosthetics or a variety of other disabilities that have never been assessed properly, they've never been evaluated. So we do a lot of work in the background navigating the quite complex health system that we have in New South Wales. Now, you know, I've been nursing over 30 years and I hardly understand it. So these poor buggers have got no chance, you know, when they arrive. What do you mean you don't understand it? Well, it's so complex. You know, I mean, you can't see a specialist until you see a GP to get a thing called a referral. And then there's the gap payment, unless you've got private health insurance. But even if you have health, private health insurance, that may not cover the gap, you know, when you're seeing a specialist. But if you see that same specialist in the public rooms, you might wait six more months to see him, but you'll see him under Medicare with no gap payment. Things like how do you access speech pathology? What age do you have to be? before you can see a speech pathologist. If you're nine, will the speech pathologist see you? 
What does an occupational therapist do? How do you find them? And what about the NDIS? How does that affect refugees arriving? If the criteria for entry to the NDIS is that you should have been living in that place for at least a year. So does that preclude refugees when they arrive? What's the difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist? What's the difference between an optometrist and an ophthalmologist? So there's some of the complexities that I even say to nursing students, well, what does an occupational therapist do? And they just look at me blankly. (laughs) (laughs) In terms of training or the upcoming nursing workforce, do you see that there is more interest for nurses to work in the area or work with people from a refugee background? Do you see that that's on the rise? Oh, certainly. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good question. So I think the profile of refugee health has really taken off in the last few years. Refugee nurses across Australia have just recently formed a specialty subgroup called the Refugee Nurses of Australia. But let me say, from a broader nursing workforce point of view, you know, Australia has resettled about 850,000 refugees since World War II. So it doesn't matter where you work as a nurse, you have cared for a refugee or someone from a refugee-type background. You've delivered their babies, you may have taken out their appendix, you may have been with them in their final hours, you may be delivering immunisations to their kids in the immunisation programs, you may be treating them for breast cancer as a breast cancer nurse, or you may indeed, as a nurse, be a nurse who's come through from a refugee family. And when you look around at some of our professionals now, particularly the Vietnamese community, who the vast majority arrived as refugees, as the boat people, of course, they're our doctors and our dentists and our scientists and our nurses, our obstetricians, and they've made an absolutely fantastic contribution to the community. And we find that with refugees. Generally, they're younger demographic than the rest of Australia. They've got a real burning desire to start again. And it's all about trying to reclaim their futures. Think Health will be back after this. What do you do when your job is taken by a robot? Where does all your e-waste go? How do you split your digital assets when you break up with your partner? This is Think Digital Futures. Each week, an exploration of the moral and mind-boggling questions that face us in the digital age. You can listen on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Digital Futures. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER. I'm Jake Morecambe. On the show today, ahead of Community and Primary Healthcare Nursing Week, headed by the Australian College of Nursing, we're showing you what it's like to work in healthcare when you have no idea what to expect. And Christine Duffield is a good example of that. I was working in a very small community town north of uh, Toronto called Palmerston. It had a population of 1,800. What else can you tell me about that town? <laughs> oh, Palmerston. It was a, a rural community. It had uh, three single women, a teacher, a physiotherapist and a nurse. So it was a small rural town. It had a very large catchment area. So while the town was 1,800, we probably serviced 30,000, 40,000 people. There were four doctors. We'd gone to university together, and, and so we all knew each other. 
by the time I finished after a year, I'd started with a caseload that had one nurse. By the time I finished, we had four nurses on staff. Four. Four. How do you look back at that time? Oh, it was an interesting position. It was my first job out of university. I didn't know what I didn't know. I was out there by myself uh, with nobody. There was no supervisor. There was, but she was, you know, 100 kilometers away. And you had to just find your own way. It was a great community. They were very friendly. Everybody knew everybody, and I'd grown up in big cities like Toronto and Vancouver. So I wasn't used to people knowing me. Uh, but you couldn't go anywhere or do anything without somebody recognizing you. But it was a great place. So what exactly was your workload? What were your duties during that time? My role was to transition people from the hospital back into the community. Uh, So I would have to assess them in hospital. I would make sure that they got home, that they had all the services that they required, whether that was home care or nursing or medical staff or physiotherapy. And then I would visit, my caseload would be probably 10 to 12 patients a day I'd see. Going back to where they lived, going back out into the community. That's right. There were some interesting moments. There was a because it's it's north of Ken, you know, north of Toronto, very heavy snowfalls, and they're rural communities, and they didn't always plow the driveways. So sometimes you would have to leave your car at the gate, and walk up in a dress, with no long pants, up through snow that was up to your waist. It was a very interesting time. Cold. Very cold. <laughs> very cold. Ten to twelve patients a day, that's a lot of different people. How do you kind of keep on top of so many different cases? I don't know. That's a good question. Um, that, that would be just a day. Now, some of them I only ever saw once a week. So the caseload, the whole caseload, was probably more like 60-odd patients when I first started. But by the time I finished, we were up to about two or 300 patients on our, on our books because we'd sort of expanded our services. Um, you just knew them all. I mean, it was at least because it was a small area, we didn't have a lot of driving, whereas some community facilities, there's a fair bit of traffic back and forth. And if you're working in the city, you could be held up for ages just in a traffic jam. So I didn't have any of that. And when it gets to those numbers, how do you kind of, I guess, if you've got it written on file, the different needs or the, the like who you're working with, who you're going to go see, you know or have an idea of the care that they need... But that is a lot of rotation. That is a lot of people. How do, you, how do you keep on top of that? Well, the advantage of working in a community is you actually have continuity. So I would see the same people, and sometimes I saw them for three or four months, so I got to know them really well. That's different than being in a hospital where a, a patient's length of stay might be a couple of days only, and so the patients you're dealing with today are not the patients you're going to see tomorrow. There's not that continuity of care, but you do get that out in the community. It was... You get to know them really well, and they, of course, get to know you really well. And because for me, before I started doing this program, the idea or my perception of what a nurse was was that just immediately working in the hospital environment, administering care for a patient who comes in, not kind of venturing far beyond that. Do you think that that is a misconception that a lot of people hold about the nursing profession? Oh, I think so. I think there's a sense that people believe nursing is, is in the four walls of a hospital. And that's where they see nurses, and they don't see them anywhere else because they're largely invisible. They don't go out with a, with an obvious uniform and an obvious car that makes them look like they're, they're nurses. They just arrive at, at an individual's home, or they're perhaps in a care facility, or they may well be working in a GP's practice, etc. But they're not necessarily identifiable. You know, they, 
the doctor with the stethoscope around his or her neck doesn't necessarily mean they're a doctor. That could just as easily be a nurse. But we all, always assume that that's the doctor. Do you think that the role of nursing in a community capacity goes underrecognised? I think the role may well be unrecognised by the community because they're not. it's not the place that you would expect to see nurses. A lot of people in the community think that nursing is, as I said, in the four walls of a hospital. That was then. The things are now changing significantly. We've got far more people with chronic and complex diseases that don't need to be in hospital but do need to be managed. A lot more people with mental health disorders that don't need to be in hospital but do need to have care and be managed. And it takes more time to deal with people in the community because you've got a caseload of, say, 10 people for that particular day. But in a hospital, you're in a small space. You've got the number of patients you've been assigned. You've got more time with them because you've got that whole shift. The thing that, that makes the community setting different is that you don't have the support of all the hospital staff 24-7. You're out there largely on your own. You can refer to other people, but you're you know when you're faced with the person with a mental health disorder in their home, it's you and them. There's no one to call out for help. So if if there was a threat of physical assault, for example, in a, in a hospital setting, there would be other people there. If there's a threat of physical assault in an individual's home, you're to a great extent largely there by yourself. So you have less control over the environment and, and the whole notion of occupational health and safety becomes more difficult in a, in a community setting such as an individual's home. If you're in a, in a workplace, you know, a GP's practice or a health clinic, there's not, you know, there's not the rest of the support services. There's nobody to ask at that point in time. Is there a comparison between staff turnover of community nurses and those in the acute hospital environment? Do, do they vary? Are they, are they along the same sort of lines? The turnover rates in hospitals vary from about 5 to 18%, and if you get higher than that, it starts to become quite problematic annually. That would be an annual turnover. And, and there will always be some of that turnover because staff move. They, they decide to change specialties. They want to work somewhere else. Uh, but when you get higher than 15, 18%, it's starting to look like there are issues on the wards. And so, you know, it's too high. And it costs about $42,000 to replace a registered nurse. But working in the communities, the evidence suggests that, that nurses working in the community are less likely to leave. Their turnover is lower because they have more autonomy. They're out there able to decide what they want to do and how to do it. There is supervision, but it's, a, it's far less supervision. And so they are more likely to be retained in the, in the system. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3. The last person you'll hear on the show today works in a centre that specialises in healthcare delivery for at-risk youth, sex workers and injecting drug users. This is Anna Doab from the Kirkton Road Centre in Sydney's Potts Point. When did you start practising as a nurse? Oh my goodness, uh, a long time ago. I've been nursing for around 20 years or so, so about 96, 1996. And where were you working at that time initially? So when I first qualified, I started working in a private psychiatric hospital in Sydney. It's the Sydney Clinic, as it's now called. And then I worked at the Prince Henry Hospital, which is now a defunct hospital, I guess. 
And then I went and did some nursing overseas and worked in London and the uh, Ireland for a while and uh, did lots of different types of nursing in lots of different types of hospitals and community settings. And then I came back and I worked at Royal Prince Alfred Hospital in the emergency department for about three years. And then I guess I just got really sick of seeing people coming through the door with what I thought would be illnesses that were largely preventable. And so I wanted to move into the community. So you said you were sick of seeing people come in with preventable diseases. Why? I just felt that I could work at the other end. I wanted to, I guess, work on the more preventable side of things instead of the acute care tertiary end of healthcare. And so then moving into the community space, how did your roles change? I got to, I guess, do more health promotion and spend more time with people as well. In emergencies, you can imagine it's a rolling door. People come in and they come out. Although you do develop good relationships with people, they're very quick. And I guess I wanted to be able to spend more meaningful time with with people and be able to make a difference at the other end of the spectrum. And when you say spend more time with them, how were you spending more time with them exactly? So building more of a rapport. So at the centre that I work at in King's Cross, it's uh, called the Kirkton Road Centre. So we largely see more vulnerable and marginalised communities and we get to know the clients, as we call them, over, you know, sometimes many weeks, months or even years and build, you know, quite a close kind of professional rapport. A lot of that work that we actually do is in drug health or sexual health or just basic primary health care needs. How did you find that transition moving from a more acute setting into one like a place where you are working now? I found the transition quite easy, actually. Working in an emergency setting, it's quite, I guess, a full-on environment where you're constantly, you know, moving and the work is ever-changing and quite chaotic. Similarly, at Kirkton Road Centre, the the work is ever-changing as well and, you know, you never know what you're dealing with from one day to the next and we see lots of different types of clients coming through the door there as well. We see clients who may be experiencing homelessness or are affected by drug or alcohol issues, specifically drug issues, drug dependency issues, uh, mental health issues as well. So when you've got a combination of maybe one or two of those issues happening at once, that can be quite challenging. How often would you typically, I guess, spend with a patient in terms of does the point of care follow beyond the hospital? Like, a period of months, perhaps even years at times? Yeah, sure. For example, we have a methadone program. So that's an opiate substitution program for people who may be dependent on heroin, for example. So those clients who may be on that program may be accessing Kirkton Road Centre for a number of years, for example. How was that? I know we talked about transition, but did your skill set have to adjust? Did it have to evolve? Or did you see it as being applicable in this new environment? Yeah, no, definitely it is a big transition phase in terms of the skill set. There's no course that you can do to transition yourself into a workplace such as that. A lot of people do um, a family planning course through Family Planning New South Wales, which is um, a really big help for a lot of nurses who are transitioning to an area such as, you know, sexual health. I did my master's in public health, which is a really great help for me. The College of Nurses does run kind of, you know, courses that kind of um, are suitable as well. Yeah, there's nothing that really truly prepares you for um, the place that I work except for on-the-job training. And there is a huge big transition and lots and lots of on-the-job training. And what was that training for you like? 
yeah, so being mentored with somebody for usually around two to three months and having like quite quite a comprehensive um, training package with competencies that we need to be um, competent in before we can actually go in and see a client on our own, for example. Like what, for example? Say, for example, if we're doing a sexual health screen, uh, usually we'll be, you know, mentored with a senior nurse and... We go in and firstly, you know, observe for the first while until, you know, we feel confident that we're able to perform one on our own um, with another senior nurse there with us until we've performed, you know, so many that we're able to actually be checked off. What's your favourite part about your job? I think that it's never the same every day. I think building rapport with clients and I think um, making a difference from the ground up and I think really making a difference to really um, vulnerable and marginalised communities and just being able to provide equitable uh, healthcare to people who may not have been able to access healthcare from mainstream healthcare services as well, so such as homeless people. Anna Doab, lecturer in the Faculty of Health at the University of Technology, Sydney. That's all we have time for today on Think Health. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Think Health. This show is a collaboration between the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER. I'm Jake Morecambe. Thanks for your company.